once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. We are pleased to bring you the message from this week's worship service. For more information about this message, this week's teacher, and to watch or see other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning. Hope you all are doing well. I have a box here on the uh, stage. I have it here for a reason. I like props, not as much as David McNeely, but I like props. And this prop is here because it helps us to introduce the series that we're starting into. And I'll start with this. Don't all of us sometimes have our thinking trapped inside the box of our previous understanding and our previous experiences? It happens to all of us, right? And sometimes to our detriment, uh, that happens. Let me give you a few uh, humorous examples from business and from history where people just weren't able to, so to speak, you know, think outside the box. Did you know in 1962, Decca Records had the chance to sign the Beatles and they passed on the Beatles because they said, guitar music is on the way out. (laughs) Hey, Decca, think outside the box, right? In 1903, Michigan Savings Bank said, the automobile is a novelty, a fad, the horse is here to stay. In 1946, 20th Century Fox said, television won't last. People will soon get tired of staring at a box every night. They think inside the box. That, yeah, that, they're going to look at it every night. In 1977, World Future Society said, there's no reason that any, any individual would want a computer in their home. Think outside the box. Recently, I was going through the Atlanta airport, and I went down a, a hallway. I really haven't gone down, I guess, in a long, long time. And on the walls is sort of the history of Atlanta. And there's a picture of uh, the Atlanta region in the early 1800s, and there's a quote from 1837, Stephen H. Long, the chief engineer of the Western and Atlantic Railroad, surveyed the spot that is like in the middle of downtown Atlanta, and this is what he said, a good location for one tavern, a blacksmith shop, a grocery store, and nothing else. (laughs) Hey, Stephen, think outside the box, right? Well, we're starting into a new four-week series from the book of Hebrews, and it's called Jesus Outside the Box. And it's the idea that all of us have the need, and some of us more than others, the need to realize that Jesus is deeper, bigger, greater, better than the box that we've put him into. And we have a deep need to know Jesus more deeply and to experience him more deeply. The book of Hebrews is written by, well, we really don't know for sure. Maybe the Apostle Paul wrote the book. Don't think so, in my opinion, but maybe. It might have been written, in fact, by a married couple that were missionaries, Priscilla and Aquila. We're we're not real sure. We just know it's a deep, rich, fantastic book, and it tells a lot about the greatness of Jesus. It was written probably, in my opinion, to second-generation Christians. It was written at a time in which Christians had begun to be persecuted by the Roman Empire in terrible ways. But it was written long enough after the death and resurrection of Jesus that there were now second-generation Jewish Christian teenagers and young adults. And those young adults were looking around and they were realizing, my Jewish friends are not getting persecuted like us Christians. It's easier to be a Jew in this empire than it is to be a Christian. Also floating around the, the Roman Empire was a new cool kind of religion called Gnosticism. Gnosticism was syncretistic and it brought beliefs from Eastern religions and Judaism and Christianity and Greek philosophy and all molded together. 
And some of these young people were tempted to wander off, sort of go off, and to follow the beliefs of Gnosticism. And to these people, whether they're thinking about reverting to Judaism or following Gnosticism, the writer of Hebrews says this, you need to understand Jesus more deeply. You need to experience Jesus more deeply. Don't go back. Don't wander away. Jesus is better than anything else you'll find anywhere else. Now, how does that relate to those of us in this room here today? I think particularly uh, the book of Hebrews, well, let me say generally, the book of Hebrews will be beneficial to all of us. All of us can use a deeper understanding of Jesus and deeper experience with Jesus. But particularly, I think the book of Hebrews will be great for four groups of us here today. And in my opinion, just pastorally, no way to prove this, but just in my opinion, probably 75% of us here today fall in one of these four groups. The first group is simply people that are bored with their faith. Been there, done that, I've heard it all, I know it all, but it doesn't mean much to me these days. My faith is dry and dead. There's barely a heartbeat going on with my faith. I'm bored with it. The second grouping is a group of people that are thinking about leaving the Christian faith. Maybe that's you today. Maybe deep down inside, you are wondering about the truth of Christianity. And you, in fact, would walk away from Christ. And you would walk away from this church and from Christianity. But it would be socially and relationally so messy. That's why you sort of go on and play the game. But there are very deep doubts in your heart. If that's where you are, this book is written for you. Thirdly, there's a third group. This is the scariest position of all. This book is written for people who have made a profession of faith in Christ. They said the right words. They prayed the prayer. They joined the church. They got baptized. All that stuff. But their faith isn't real. They have professed it to be true. And they may not even know it. But they haven't experienced the saving grace of God. It's a false profession of faith. This book is written for these people too. And lastly, it's written for people that know they're not believers, but they actively want to investigate the Christian faith. Now, my standing up here today is like sort of this big, bad, prideful pastor and throwing stones at three out of four of you. You need to know that's not the case. I've been there. I battle some of these things myself. In fact, for me, the... One of the times in which this book of Hebrews became most meaningful to me was this. Just before I left the Deep South and went to Chicago for seminary, I had gone through a very hard and painful and disappointing chapter of my life. It was through my own decisions that I entered that time of deep disappointment and pain. I was disappointed in myself. I was disappointed in certain Christian leaders who I thought had misled me. But most of all, I was disappointed with God. I felt like he had let me down. And so get this, at the time that I'm driving up to the Midwest to prepare to be a minister of the gospel, I was actively doubting the truth of the gospel. And so what I chose to do was camp out in the book of Hebrews. I knew this book well enough to know this is what I needed to read for my faith to be restored and my doubts to be addressed. Not only that, it's not just ancient relevance for me. About 10 years ago, I went through a period of time that it wasn't a time of doubt, but it was a time in which my faith was dry and it felt dead. I needed it to be revived. 
And so I camped out in the book of Hebrews. I need the truths of this book every day for my heart and my life. And the way the writer of Hebrews deals with all of this is this way. He says, take Jesus out of the little box that you've had him in. Understand Jesus more deeply. Experience Jesus more deeply. And you will find that he is better than anything that has gotten your attention and your affection in this world. That's what it's all about. And that's what we want to dig into in this book. We're going to spend the first three out of these four weeks in the first eight verses of this book. It's so exciting. Week number four, we're going to go to chapter 12. But in the first three weeks, we're going to see this, that Jesus speaks and Jesus atones and Jesus reigns. We're going to talk about that Jesus is our prophetic Savior. He gives us the truth. We're going to talk about that Jesus is our priestly Savior. He is the solution to our sin and our guilt and our shame. We're going to see that Jesus is our kingly Savior, and he gives us guidance and protection and direction. But very foundationally, we want to see that Jesus is our prophetic Savior. And what we're going to see is this. Our problem has simply been we need a deeper understanding of Jesus, and we need a deeper experience with Jesus. So let's stand. Let me ask you to stand with me, and we're going to read from the English Standard Version, the first eight verses of Hebrews chapter 1. This deep, this thrilling, this terrific book starts like this. The writer says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in and by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, that is Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you're my son, today I've begotten you? And the answer is, he's never done that, none. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn, that is Jesus, into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Angels are to worship Jesus. But of the angels, he merely says, he makes his angels winds and his servants or ministers a flame of fire. In other words, Jesus is God's son. Angels are merely God's servants. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. He is saying Jesus is the Son of God, and the Son of God is God himself. Oh, Lord, we ask you today in this message, speak to us by your Spirit. Show us the greatness and the beauty of the Lord Jesus and our need for him, and draw us closer to him today, we pray. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Today's message is entitled, Jesus Speaks. He is our prophetic king. Up there in Chicago, when I was going through that period of doubt, yes, I needed Jesus to be my priest and take away my sins and my guilt. I'd made a lot of mistakes. I needed Jesus to be my king and to lead me. But first and foremost, I needed Jesus to be the prophet of God and tell me what was true and give to me the good news. The question we're delving into today is this. Why is Jesus the final authoritative truth? Why is he the final authoritative truth, the final word from God? 
The writer of Hebrews in these first three verses, in fact, says the same thing three different ways to answer that question. First of all, he says this. He is the final word of God, the final authoritative truth because of this. He is God's son. He is God's son. Where do we see that? Look again at verses 1 and 2. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by or in his son. It's amazing. In Romans chapter 1, as Paul begins writing this terrific letter, he starts by saying the gospel is all about Jesus. And the fact that Jesus is both human and divine. And he says, if I might paraphrase him, we know about the humanity of Jesus because he is from the lineage of David. We can see his family history. And we can see he's divine this way. He was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. My friends, that is the evidence we're looking for. If we begin to examine this whole thing of faith with an open mind, if we admit that there could be a spiritual part of the universe as well as a material part, and if there's a spiritual part, there could be a God who is out there. And if there's a God, there could be miraculous things that occur. And if we allow even a bit of that possibility, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is absolutely overwhelming. God declared Jesus to be the Son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. It's amazing that God has spoken to us not just through human beings like the prophets and not just through angels. He has spoken to us personally through his very own son. One of the leaders in the early church was a man named Athanasius. Athanasius tells the story of another man by the name of Anthony. Anthony was a man who was famous at that time. He had given up great riches to be a follower of Jesus. And he was so noted that in fact from time to time, Roman emperors would write to him and ask for advice or input on things. And upon receiving one of those imperial letters, Anthony called his followers together and he said this, Do not be astonished that an emperor would write to us because he is merely a man. But stand and be in awe that God has spoken to us by his son. Amen. It's amazing. He has spoken to us by the Son. This is one reason Jesus is the final authoritative truth, the final word from God. He is God the Son. The second reason is this. It's really the same thing said a different way. Secondly, because he is the very glory of God. The very glory of God. Look at verse 3 in Hebrews 1. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Our lead pastor here, our lead teacher, Randy Pope, has written a book called The Answer. And in The Answer, Randy says that the story of Christianity is the story of glory. And that glory centers on Jesus Christ. The Old Testament word for glory was the word Shekinah. When the Shekinah glory of God visited Israel, it was always an amazing thing. The glory of God is the brightness of God, his splendor, his radiance, his majesty, his power. And God the Son is to God the Father, one person has said, as light is to shining. What's the relationship between light and shining? It's the same thing. And so we would say that the essence of God the Father is the same as God the Son, the same as God the Spirit. Jesus is of the same substance with the Father. And he is the final word from God because he is God. The third way that the writer of Hebrews puts it is this, that Jesus is the agent of creation. Look again, please, at verses 2 and 3. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he created the world. 
He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And then he says, and he, that is Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. There are three phrases in this passage that describes how Jesus is related to this created universe. And here they are. He is the agent of creation. He is the heir of all things. And he is the sustainer of all things. Now, that's a way of saying, if we could leave that up for a moment, he is God, he is God, he is God. God is the creator. So if Jesus is the agent of creator, he is God. God is the owner of all things. And if Jesus owns all things as the heir, he must be God. And God is the sustainer of all things. This is a way of saying, yes, Jesus is the Lord. I love the way the Apostle John put this in his first chapter of his gospel. He said that Jesus is the living word, and because he is the word, remember God spoke the universe into existence. When God spoke the universe into existence, creation happened through the power of Jesus. John 1, 1 through 3, in the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made, and without Him nothing was made that has been made. There's the exposition of God's Word. Now let's turn our attention to this. How did this relate to the first people who heard this message? This whole book of Hebrews, all 13 chapters, more than 300 verses, was read to a congregation as one sermon. You think my sermons are long? Imagine that. The whole thing, one sermon. A lot of stuff out there. Now, one of those first hearers, how did it relate to them? And then let's think about how it relates to us in our culture. As I've already said, in the first century, there were these second-generation Jewish Christians And they were really actively thinking about reverting to Judaism. Our grandparents have it easier than our parents because they're not followers of Jesus. Let's go back to that. Well, all the other people we know our age, a lot of them are going the way of Gnosticism. Wow, that sounds a a cool new religion. And so the writer of Hebrews basically says, "Are are you thinking back to traditional religion or innovative new religions? Jesus is better than both. You've thought of the prophets as being the messengers of God, and it's true. They were messengers of God. They spoke for God, but they were like messenger boys. Jesus was the originator of the message, and there's nobody after him who's any better. It all leads up to him. They also knew that in the Old Testament, besides the prophets, there were the angels. The word angel actually means messenger. And there's example after example of how God gave his message to people through angels, through his messengers. The Gnostics had sort of hijacked this angelic thing. They elevated the role of angels as being the supreme uh, messengers, the supreme prophets, so to speak, the supreme source of knowledge about the divine. The writer of Hebrews basically says here, yeah, angels are cool. (laughs) They can appear as flames of fire. They are big and scary when they get in front of people. But you know, God never gave his throne to an angel. But he has given his throne to Jesus. Angels are merely servants. Jesus is the son of God. And so he says, where are you going to go looking for ultimate truth? Are you going to look to traditional historic religions? Are you going to look to cool, contemporary, new philosophies and religions. And the writer of Hebrews says, don't go either direction. Focus on Jesus. He is better 
than anything historic. He is better than anything new. He is the ultimate word from God. Now, besides looking at how this applied in the first century, the question is, how does it apply to us today? Let me ask you this question. How does our culture deal with the concept of truth? Well, if you're paying attention to things, especially if you know and understand, if you've studied philosophy, and if you're looking at our culture, you're going to know that truth is not very popular with our culture. In fact, you may not have known this, or you may have seen it in the news, but in November of 2016, Oxford Dictionary chose the word post-truth to be the word of 2016. Post-truth. One newspaper wrote about it this way. It said, it's official, truth is dead. Facts are passe. And it goes on to say, in this case, the prefix post doesn't mean after so much as it implies an atmosphere in which a notion, in this case the notion of truth, is now irrelevant. Well, if you understand philosophy, it's no surprise that we've gotten to a place in our culture where truth is irrelevant, if knowable at all. There's a friend of mine by the name of Dr. Tom Wood. He helps church planters, and he has written and said that we live in a post-everything culture. The culture in which we live is post-modern and post-Protestant and post-Catholic and post-secular. It's a post-everything culture. And he's identified, I think, six characteristics of our culture, and he's right on target. First of all is this. In our culture, what is espoused, what is promoted is this belief, first of all, that God is the same for everyone. He is the good in all that we see. There's no need for a personal relationship with God. Secondly, you can be anything you want to be and accomplish anything you want to accomplish, including perfectibility. Believe strongly in human potential, we're told. Number three, all religions are basically the same. No one should be too strict in their religion or think their religion is right and everyone else is wrong. Extremism extremism is wrong. We must be tolerant of all. Except, of course, of those who have a specific historic belief system. Those people we should not tolerate. Number four, what you do and what works for you is what is right and true. It doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're helping other people. Number five, there is no objective standard in right and wrong that's right for everyone. And lastly, you must be true to yourself if you're going to be happy. And being happy is the supreme value of all. Wouldn't you say that that is what our culture tells us every day of our lives? It really does. Now here's my question to you. Will you have the intellectual honesty and will you have the emotional courage to doubt that narrative? That narrative will be screamed to you through popular culture and through friends and through things you read and songs you listen to. It's going to be there all the time. Will you be intellectually honest enough? Will you be emotionally courageous enough to doubt that narrative and think there might be something that really is true and it could be knowable? And if it's knowable, I'm accountable for it. You see, in my opinion, the reason this philosophy catches on like wildfire is this, is that once I'm buying into this, I can live any way I want to. It's my choice. It's my decision. And I'm not going to get any pushback. A little more of an intellectual, academic approach to defining postmodernism 
has been given to us through pbs.org. And I intentionally sought a source that was not a Christian source to define this. Here's a little bit of a long definition, but follow along with me. This is what postmodernism is. And this is what you're being told to believe day in and day out every day. Postmodernism is a general and wide-ranging term which is applied to literature, art, philosophy, architecture, fiction, and cultural and literary criticism, among others. Postmodernism is largely a reaction to the assumed certainty of scientific or objective efforts to explain reality. Postmodernism is highly skeptical of explanations which claim to be valid for all groups, cultures, traditions, or races, and instead focuses on the relative truths of each person. In the postmodern understanding, don't miss this, interpretation is everything. Reality, quote-unquote, only comes into being, quote-unquote, through our interpretation of what the world means to us individually. Postmodernism is post because it denies the existence of any ultimate principles, and it lacks the optimism of there being a scientific, philosophical, or religious truth which will explain everything for everybody. In my opinion, postmodernism, which is a term that I hadn't heard before maybe 30 years ago, postmodernism represents the triumph of the philosophy called existentialism. Existentialism was birthed in the latter part of the 19th century and was very influential throughout the 20th century. What is existentialism saying? Existentialism says everything we just talked about. That is existentialism. Basically, existentialism says this, our experience creates our truth. Did you hear that? Our experience creates our truth. And there is no such thing as true truth that is true for everybody. Well, in the middle of the 20th century, there was a, and in the latter part of the 20th century, there was a Christian philosopher and writer and scholar and pastor and missionary by the name of Dr. Francis Schaeffer. Dr. Schaeffer saw the rise of existentialism, the rise of relativism and what it would do in Western culture. And therefore, he wrote a trilogy of books. The first book was entitled, The God Who Is There. The second book is entitled, Escape from Reason. Because he said what's happening in Western culture is that people look to feelings and experiences to tell them what's true rather than looking to reason and rationality to tell them what's true. And thirdly, the book that relates to our message today, the third book of the trilogy is entitled, He is There and He is Not Silent. In other words, Jesus speaks. God has revealed himself and he has revealed what is true. Let me summarize perhaps a little bit of what Schaefer said. He said, yes, we are rational beings, and we are to seek truth through redeemed reason. But we don't find ultimate truth through the philosophy of rationalism. And yes, we are experiential, empirical beings. We believe in the basic reliability of sense perception. That's why science is valid. But we don't believe we will ever experience and discover ultimate truth through empiricism. Well, if it's not through rationalism, if it's not through empiricism, how do we find ultimate truth? And he says this, it is revealed by God. Jesus speaks. And when we were in a place in which we could not find ultimate truth ourselves, God has revealed it to us. And praise God that he has. One last quote, from, and this one from Dr. Schaefer. He said this in his book, He is There and He is Not Silent. Christianity's presupposition begins with the God who is there. 
who is the infinite personal God who has made mankind in his image. He has made mankind to be a verbalizer in the area of propositions in his horizontal communication to other people. Even secular anthropologists say that somehow or other, they don't know why, mankind is a verbalizer. You have something different in mankind. The Bible says and the Christian position says, I can tell you why. God is a personal infinite God. There's always been communication before the creation of all else in the Trinity. And God has made mankind in his own image. And part of making man in his image is that man is a verbalizer. That stands in the unity of Christian structure. We speak to one another because God speaks. We communicate to one another because God communicates within himself and to us. And that ultimate speaker, that ultimate source of truth is God the Son. Jesus has come to be the truth for us, to tell us what is true, to be the plumb line by which every other part of our truth is understood. See, here's the essence of today's message. It doesn't matter whether you were a young Jewish professing Christian in the first century and you were tempted to revert to Judaism or you were tempted to wander off into Gnosticism. The writer of Hebrews says, Jesus is better. Go deeper into him. Or perhaps today you're one and you're simply bored with your faith. You're bored. You wonder whether it's real. And the writer of Hebrews says, understand Jesus more deeply. Experience Jesus more deeply. Get him outside of the little box of your previous experiences and understanding. And if you're being perhaps drawn into a worldview in which there's no real right or wrong, it's postmodernism, it's existentialism, it's whatever. You need to know Jesus is better. And he is the one who will give us what is true. See, when I was in uh, Chicago, it's true, I was disappointed. But I refused to escape from reason. And I refused to let my emotions dictate to me my beliefs. And I pounded away, looking again at who Jesus is, at his greatness, at his beauty, at his wonder of why I believed what I believed. And he brought me back. And here's what I found, my friends, is this Jesus who is the prophet of truth is also the kindest, the most compassionate, the most loving Savior you could ever choose. Yes, he represents truth, and that truth is unbending. Yes, he is righteous and he is holy, and that holiness is unbending. But here is a compassionate Savior who saves sinners and brings truth to people who have been refusing to hear. Let me close by giving you a story that Jesus told, a parable he told, because it's right on target with what this is about. In Matthew 21, Jesus says, let me tell you another story, another parable. He said there was a landowner, and that landowner represents God the Father. And he had a vineyard, and he gave that vineyard over to tenants who would take care of the vineyard. Those tenants represented the leaders of the nation of Israel. And he sent people to collect what was his, what was due to him as the owner of the vineyard. Those people represented the prophets. 
And the story goes that when he sent these people to the tenants, the tenants beat one and they killed another and they stoned a third. And that's what happened to the prophets of the Old Testament. And the owner of the vineyard says, they're not listening to my servants. And so last of all, last of all, he said, I'll send my son. Surely they'll listen to my son. But when the son was sent, the tenant said, ah, look, it's the heir. Let's kill him. And then this vineyard will be ours. Notice that the son came last of all. Notice there was no better messenger than the son. But they killed the son. You see, when Jesus came as the ultimate final word of God, he knew what was going to happen. He knew he would be crucified. But he came anyway. Why? He came to redeem you and me from our unbelief. He came to save us from those times in which we refuse to listen to our God. And it's that powerful act of the cross that can turn unbelievers into believers. It's the powerful act of the cross that turns unbelief into faith and keeps turning our practical unbelief into faith every day of our lives. I needed this when I was a kid and I was first converted, and I need it every day. And the reason is this. Every day, my pride, my disobedience, my despair, all those things come from practical ways in which I don't believe that Jesus is the truth and tells the truth. And so every day I have to be brought back again and again and again. Jesus is the prophet who tells me the truth. And when I look to the cross, when I see that he came willingly to die for me, I see here is a prophet. He loves me, he is good to me, and he is faithful to me, even when he tells me what I don't want to hear. That's the good news of this gospel. I think the last thing that puts it all together all in one place is from 1 Peter. The Apostle Peter has a text in which he combines the voice of God and the love of God and the cross of Jesus. And here's what he says. He himself, that is Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that is the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. For by his wounds you've been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, refusing, may I add, refusing to listen to the voice of Jesus. But now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls who's been calling for you all along. My friend, whose voice do you listen to to tell you what's true? Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. They hear me and they follow me. And Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Today, if you hear his voice, believe and follow the one who died for you. He's good. He loves you. He'll take care of you. And the truth that he brings will set you free. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you're this kind of truth-telling prophet who came to tell us the good news about how we were made in the image of God, and yes, he came to tell us the bad news about how we have rebelled and what consequences that will bring to us. But we also thank you that Jesus is one who tells us the good news 
that there is a Savior who dies and is raised again for us. And he not only tells us that good news, he creates that good news. He is that Savior. And we thank you for the final part of this good news, that one day this Jesus who came first to die for us, he will restore all things and make things as they should be. Oh, Lord, thank you for this wonderful, wonderful Savior. Thank you for this source of ultimate authoritative truth. May we believe him, and may we be blessed by the gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.